This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello there, welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers. It's the weekend edition. Let's say hello now to Mr. Leon Logan-Nathan. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Good, good. Uh, In between meetings, but uh, ready and rearing to go. All right, well, let's get the man in question on. It's weekends with Walshie time, and I believe he has been let go from the gulag somewhere in the rural area. Christopher Walsh <laughs> from the NT Independent Online Newspaper. How are you, mate? Hey, I'm good, guys. Good to be back with you. Yeah, long, long week off. Looking bright-eyed and ready to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good work, good work. Chris, mate, uh, look, a great week of stories. Um, but when I say great, uh, I mean topical, uh, not great from a... From an uplifting perspective, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, it rarely is when Parliament's sitting for the week. So, yeah. Mate, uh, I, I just want to get straight into this story. Uh, 400 more, more than 400 public servants hired since government hiring freeze implemented. What on earth is going on, Chris? Lucky yeah, time, look, yeah. As I was saying, the, with Parliament resuming this week, uh, gets interesting because it's the end of the year here, uh, and so we're starting to see these annual reports starting to be tabled in Parliament. And one of them that I was looking at last night was, of course, the, what they call the State of the Service Report, which is done by the Public Employment Commissioner, who kind of gives us a snapshot of exactly who's making up the public service these days and. Uh, what we what we see here, and I mean, they're they're quite upfront about this, right? I mean, like she's not running a, a a political agenda at all here. She's just giving us the numbers of this is who's who's employed there. Now, of course, the political agenda on the other side of that is that, of course, back in 2018, uh, when Michael Gunner sent out the then treasurer Nicole Madison to reveal this financial crisis we were in, uh, one of the things that they came up with was, well, they didn't want to sack. Uh, public servants, which, you know, I mean, that's the single biggest expense, right? I mean, you're looking at $2.5 billion there in expenses and, uh, you know, salaries and and costs like that associated with employees, but they didn't want to cut anybody. So they said, oh, you know, we'll get some voluntary redundancies out of this and we'll do a hiring freeze. Uh, Now that was kind of really came in officially in early 2019 as a way to uh, to deal with this financial crisis. So what we saw then was, uh, you know, back then too, I'm thinking it was, I'm not sure this was in the stories, 21,118, something like that, in terms of full-time equivalent public servants, which were on the books. And they said, okay, we're going to do a hiring freeze. And we thought it was going to be at that level. Well, no, and then they readjusted that. And that was what, that was in March, they announced that in November last year. They re- readjusted it, they said, and said, no, nah, it's actually going to be around, you know, 21,395. That's where we're going, but we're not going to go over this limit. Okay, guys, this is where the cap comes in. Well, now we see that as of June 2020, uh, in terms of full-time equivalents, you've got 21,836, which is, you know, 444 more uh, than what they said. And that was after they adjusted their first, their first figure. So, Clearly, they haven't been keeping to that that pledge to do that. I mean, when you when you're saying you're going to do a hiring freeze, well, that means you know you don't go over those that limit that number, uh, and they've continually gone over it, and really for for the better part of two years here, haven't shown the discipline it takes to, uh, to institute the hiring freeze or 
for that matter, either to uh, to get the chief executives in the departments to stop hiring people. Like they even said at one point, okay, we're serious about this. We're going to, you know, any chief executive has mm. to come to us as cabinet mm. to get approval to hire people. And, you know, either that happened where there were over 400 people who were hired, the cabinet approved, or it didn't, in which case the chief executives aren't doing their jobs properly. But either way, uh, this is not how you save money. By, by hiring hundreds of more public servants when you say you're done and it won't happen. That's, that's a hiring phrase, the equivalent to that kids' competition that says, okay, everyone be silent from now. No, from <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. So, the, you know, on November 10th, when um, the chief minister uh, announces his first budget as treasurer, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised, Pete, if that is. Okay, from now, though, we're serious this time. <laughs> now we're going to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, look, it's, that's so much money. It's just so much money and, and clearly not, not what the public expects of them when they say they're going to do something. And now when we see these figures, we know that they, they haven't followed through with it. Um, especially yeah. like when you, when you look at that, like, I think we've talked about this before, the population, um, rate is nowhere near where the, the, the public service hiring rate is. And, and in fact, for private labor, it, it's, it's incongruent with that as well. And one of the one of the lines, the important lines from that state of the service report was that the most significant difference uh, occurred in the past two years when the anti-population slightly declined. So here we are with a declining population, yet we're hiring more public servants, yeah. which is, um, I don't know how you justify that. No, and look, you know, as much as we can sit there and make jokes about it, um, it, it truly is a slap in the face to private enterprise because, you know, yeah. I was at a dinner, I was at a lunch for the Chamber of Commerce the other day, and while, as everyone knows, I've been in Victoria for most of this year where it's it's really tough, but I was pleasantly surprised, probably the wrong way of putting it, but just to hear everybody talking about just how tough the conditions are how everybody's had to pull in their belts, how everybody's reduced spending, reduced hiring, reduced costs just to stay alive. It's a real slap in the face to hear government just typical, don't give a shit, just keep bouldering on, keep hiring, hiring, hiring. We'll tell you one thing, do something else. People mm. just can't stand it. Well, and look at this too, Pete. I mean, uh, let's not forget about that 2.5% pay rise mm. that, that went into yeah. effect just before the election. Now, that... That's interesting because uh, I think it was, and it ties into another story that we ran this week about the, the annual report in education, but the, the education union came out and said that 2.5% increase, while nice and good to have, that's not even, that's not even funded. Like they don't, they don't mm. even know where they're getting this money from. Like this is, they've just given it to them as a sweetener, it looks like, before the election. Yeah. And we know that the public service played a huge part in Labor winning that election. Um, but yeah, this is just financial irresponsibility, really, when you think about it. And yeah, I, I feel for the private business owners who are out there struggling and, and, and you know, wanting to keep their employees and being in this tough economic time. And here is the government hiring more people and giving them pay, pay rises whenever they like. And there's no, there doesn't appear to be any consequences. It's yeah. Well, look, to be, f to be fair uh, about this, as far as I, as I understand it, this, uh, uh, this pay rise was negotiated, you know, three years ago or more. Uh, and they, it's a rolling thing that they do with the CPSU or whatever the public sector union is called. Um, we need to get someone from there on, onto this podcast, yeah, I think. Yeah. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, look, sure. uh, look the, 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 those pay rises were negotiated at least three years ago. 
Um, in fact, Kate Wooden told us that uh, on a podcast that we had with her recently. So, you know, I mean, it's hard to, you know, in as much as it's annoying that, you know, that you can have a pay rise in the middle of a pandemic uh, when everyone else is on JobKeeper or, or, you know, not that far off it. Um, if it was instituted, well, okay, you know, you suck it up and, and move on and you hope that in the next round, which is this year, and I hope you keep your eye on this one, Chris, Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the next round of, of, of public service wage negotiations will be happening this year, and we hope that they keep it, um, you know, that, that they have a, have a good long think about it. But what is completely unforgivable here is the fact that, you know, they don't, they, they, they can't even put a freeze on public service, uh, yeah. you know, uh, engagement. I mean, I just don't understand how, how you can do that. In the private sector, if you say we aren't employing anyone, we aren't employing anyone. That's it. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, there's, there's, there's no if, buts, or what fors. Yeah, anyone's anyone. So <laughs> it's just pathetic, annoying. Uh, and Nicole Madison was, in fact, at that lunch that you're talking about, Peter, because I yeah. was there as well. Yeah. And I noted with some interest the comments about, oh, how amazing the public services have been throughout this pandemic and, mm. uh, you know, uh, how they've stepped up to the mark and, and really, uh, you know, outdone themselves. And hopefully we're going to see much more of those efficiencies going forward. Well, what the hell are these numbers? Yeah. Uh, they don't speak to efficiency at all. No. No. no, and then you mix that in with the senior executive services staff, of course, and the, the contracts there that we talked about, which is way more than Tasmania and the ACT combined. Um, yeah, there, there, there hardly seems to be any focus on saving money anywhere in this. And even just back there on the pay rise, uh, so they get the 2.5%, but things are different now. Things are tough. People are losing their jobs in the private sector. But also remember that, that they went to a lot of executives and told them to take a pay cut. And they couldn't even get them to agree to do it. Like not everybody would even agree to do that when when they could mm. to save money. So yeah, doing it like this just isn't working right now. And it mm. looks like you know if you if you were fiscally responsible, you probably start have to look at something else here because the hiring yeah. freeze clearly isn't working. But I don't think there's an appetite to do that. I think it's just let's keep spending and uh, the Lord will provide. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly what's going on. In fact, there's another diabolical element to all of this, Chris, and that is. Uh, the, the stories that I'm now hearing are people in the private sector are looking to move into the public service because the wages and conditions yep. are so good. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I was... Yeah, you, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. what the heck? You know, we're going to end up with, uh, <laughs> you know, a, 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 no private sector Government in, in the Northern Territory, really. Mm. Yeah. Jesus, yeah, that's scary. Yeah, when you think about the contracts, we did the story about that. Um, yeah you know, for getting consultants in and that that's getting out of hand too now. I mean, they're just... Correct. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. There's direct employees and then there's contracts as well, so... Yeah, yeah, which Mind is way bubbles. above this stuff. So, yeah, yeah. very troubling. Anyway, uh, uh, something else from the government this week, uh, a bold new plan uh, to tackle escalating youth crime. Uh, no courts and no detention. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's not not actually been uh, yet endorsed by the anti-government. Uh, but, of course, there were a, uh, a couple of elders who've come forward here. Uh, Carol Peterson, of course, a former National Elder of the Year, 
And um, the CEO of a group called Deadly Guardians, uh, Keith Gregory. Um, now, both of them have been working on this on this project, I guess, you know, a bit of an ambitious plan, as they say, which is, has been flagged with uh, the Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians, Kent Wyatt. We understand that he's, he's receptive to, uh, to hearing them out and um, that they will be bringing this forward with a, uh, a Sally Severs, of course, who is the acting children's commissioner now in the NT. Um, basically, what, what this is looking at is, oh, I suppose you, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this here, but... Um, you know, and basically, I guess how they're putting it is that it's a notion that education, health, and commerce are, are paramount in creating these shifts in society. Decision making must be given back to community leaders. Um, so they basically are saying, let the indigenous elders deal with this stuff themselves. That that, that they are better at doing this. Um, they're saying that look, we've seen in Don Dale. And uh, what they said are white systems uh, is clearly not working. Even the government's own um, uh, diversion programs. Uh, they're saying, look, you're not getting the results on this stuff. Let's go back to this way of doing things. And, and, it, and it's somewhat different in the sense that um, I don't think it's, it's, it's as traditional as, as some would think here. So what they're saying is that basically these kids are encouraged to go to school to eat healthy exercise. And then there's an online guardian they're calling it who would, um, you know, they kind of report to who would influence them, be a positive role model for them. Um, and they can earn points and rewards, uh, for the more they go to school. And this kind of, I think will tie into something else that will come up later. Um, and that those who rebel or those who get in trouble, uh, the community pressure will be put on them. Um, if a youth commits a crime, uh, the, the justice system, they're saying, just don't get involved in the anti-legal system. Uh, instead, they would take the children who commit the crimes and put them into an academy run by ex-Indigenous police officers, rangers, and Norforce members for the remainder of their schooling. So exactly, like, I don't know if that means for the year or yeah. until they're, they're older. And one of the things, though, that, of course, I think would jump into everybody's mind around then is... Are we looking at another stolen generation thing here where these kids are mm. trucked off to school? Now, uh, Keith Gregory from the Deadly Guardians program is saying, no, uh, that's not what it's like. The, he's saying that it's, you know, that the action needs to be taken, that the youth diversion programs aren't working, and um, that the bush camps, too, don't kind of chart a future for them. But if they're in this academy, they can get focused on, on, um, on, I guess, pursuing, you know, a, on a brighter future moving forward and um, while maintaining their culture, uh, which would be a big part of it, of course, uh, getting Indigenous elders involved would be that. So it's one of those things that, um, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about this before on here. I mean, what are some of the solutions here? It's, not, it's clearly not working. The youth crime rate is completely over the top here and out of control. Mm -hmm. Um so to get these ideas, I think they're important to kind of throw out there and to get people discussing it. And, you know, his, 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 their idea that this is a holistic thing that includes, you know, education, healthcare, um, housing, really, too. I mean, these are things that we've spoken about before, mm. that all of these things have to work in tandem here to, to change that, that culture, that, um, the, the, the kind of way that everything's going here now, and, and, and to address those really fundamental problems early on 
um, that lead that lead to a to a life of crime. And that's what we've we've seen far too much. So uh, I think that's pretty good of them to to recognize that. I, I think you know sometimes maybe the government says it does, but it clearly isn't being able to have their agencies work together to find solutions so you know this is an idea let's throw it out there let's get the yeah. community talking is this something that, that should be looked at hmm. it's something well, you know I, I i i don't know i mean i would love it to work hmm. uh in fact we've had you know recently uh, on the podcast we've had people from uh, you know malcolm turnbull all the way down to young sam um Roussos. all say the same thing you know, we've 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 told you know in, Indigenous uh, Australians, you know what to do for two hundred years. It's time we step mm-hmm. back, and mm-hmm. uh, and let uh, and let them make um, a, you know, and ask them what they need. Mm. Um, well, I hope I hope this is what's happening. I, I, I can't I can't tell from from the article whether that's what's being proposed, but um, you know the the one guy. That I hang, you know, I, I would put my money on to actually make a difference is Craig Glass. If you listen to what he says, the one way out of poverty and and you know towards self determination is education. Yeah. And that leads me to your next story here, where I read with 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 more dismay, Chris. Yeah. Only thirty two percent of Indigenous students attend school more than four days a week. Students have registered only minimum improvements in maths and some cohorts. Reading skills have worsened, and the department's and that's what the department department's annual report shows. What the heck is going on, mate? Well, yeah, it's um, look. This is like I said, the time of year where these annual reports are coming out, and there's no hiding the figures anymore. This isn't political anymore. This is the actual hard facts. Of what's going on, so the spin's kind of taken out uh, for the most part. Anyway, I mean, there's stuff that they aren't releasing in there still too, but mm. um, yeah, enough enough here for concern. Uh, and of course, you know, so you, you've got that to start with, and then you've got or those kind of failings in the system, and then you've got these budget cuts that they're implementing. And um, I, I was surprised in this story too. To you know, well, well, the government says that look, we've had to cut the budgets on here and we know that they have to make cuts somewhere um but they're not doing it to the teachers they're not doing it anywhere there they'll they'll try and trim from wherever they can and uh, i think they were saying no adverse effect on schools or students but uh, surprisingly you know jarvis ryan from the education unit has come out and said that look that that 2.5 salary increase hasn't been funded we know uh there's a massive backlog in maintenance and repairs and we know schools have gone out with gone without basic things um so that's kind of where they're making the money up here but they're still paying everybody uh so you know i don't know when you're looking at who is supposed to meet those targets and stuff um what's going on here really i mean that seems a little mixed up to me that you're rewarding and they're getting paid for not meeting their their kpis which they should be um in terms of look you know and attendance has always been like the biggest issue here in the NT, uh, especially in remote communities and stuff, getting kids there. But whatever they're doing doesn't appear to be working. But, I mean, where's the consequence for that? If yep. the money's still there and they're still hiring and, um, you know, well, it's still, you know, paying, giving pay rises and things like that while trying to save money off of little things where maybe the schools are, are not kept up as well. 
Uh, look, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to, what the solution is here. Um, the CLP's come out and they've said that they find it shockingly low, these attendance figures that have been reported this year. Talking about uh, bringing back truancy officers, uh, school-based policing, I'm not sure that's the way, but uh, I think the discussion starts to have to happen in that in that space too. And, and education in the end is really something as long as I've been here in the past six years, is that we, we haven't really heard much about it. I mean, the, the funding, the money's been there. Mm. Uh, the tests are usually, you know, somewhat average or something. Um, uh, it, it's never really caused a lot of, uh, of headlines, really, in the news around here. But look, you just, you pull out one of these reports and you start to have a look and you start to see maybe some troubling um, statistics here. And then maybe we should all be paying a little more attention to this and, finding out uh, exactly what's going on. And, you know, we've got a new education minister, of course, Lauren Moss. Uh, she's refused to answer any questions. So I'll be surprised <laughs> oh, about oh, that. Yeah. Um, look, I don't, I don't know what her, like she doesn't have any background on being minister for education anyway. So I don't think that even she'd be able to answer our questions if, if she got them anyway. Um, so, Yeah. Yeah, this is this is another disappointment and another one that's you know, no easy solutions here. But uh, um, you want to see them try something. What did Craig say? Forty million was it that he needed to pay? Yeah, yeah, in that forty part. million Australia wide to fix this problem, mm. Chris. No, that sounds well, like a bargain when you're yeah. looking at yeah. some of this stuff. Yeah, you, Chris, you, you might want to get on, get him on one of these days and have a chat to him for your paper. Because I think yeah. you find the guy is got has got a lot of good ideas, yeah. extremely experienced, and is and is utterly focused on outcomes, yeah. which is more than I can say from reading what I'm reading here, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, yeah, we've got to look at it, and yeah, that that does sound interesting. We will get in touch with them because we got to start having this conversation, or yeah. nothing's gonna nothing's gonna get fixed. Yes, and uh, speaking of outcomes that didn't happen, um, of course, the Darwin RSL was due to have its big vote last week about its uh, <laughs> new digs, and uh, the, the Mayor of Darwin was within his technical rights to sidestep democracy, but questions linger over the secret information that he got. <laughs> yeah, that's right, guys. Like, Look, that was kind of the third story in a three-part kind of series that we did here following up from that vote from last week. And uh, I think you guys had talked to Woody about that uh, last week a bit. And then we He was started... being a bit evasive, Woody. He was a bit worried yeah. about getting sued or something. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't quite figure it out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we told him the yeah. NT Independent just loves being sued, but he, didn't seem, <laughs> he wouldn't roll with it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we try to avoid that at all costs. Um, but we did get the story out, which tells you that we have it on pretty good authority. And of course, yeah. the first story was um, somewhat uh, revelatory in that when that vote happened and, uh, about the RSL and, and Darwin Council's supposed in principle support for it, that was supposed to happen and happen, and then con you know, in front of, what, 300 people or something, says, uh, no, we're not voting on this tonight. And he called it off with no explanation, and nobody knew what the hell was going on. And so we start getting calls from people. We start making other calls ourselves. And it turns out that um, 
uh, he was, uh, he had been in receipt, let's say, of a letter of a legal nature, let's say. We've got to be careful here on exactly what the contents of that letter were. Mm. Um, but suffice to say, it was enough on its own to um, to warrant the deferral of debate over that particular issue that night. Yeah. And so what he does is he calls off the debate and he doesn't tell anybody why. And the next morning, there's this grand story of um, Billawar Lee uh, calling him up. He's told different iterations of the story either called or she showed up and he fell out of his chair. He could not believe this is a sacred <laughs> site. Oh, I could not believe I fell out of my chair. Yeah. Um, I think he may have <laughs> fell out of the chair when he read that legal letter. But anyway, uh, uh, So he's sticking to this story. Now, it, it seems to me very strange that he doesn't just tell everybody that night. Right? I mean, you've got hundreds of people out there paying for blood. Um, yeah. and, and he, and he riles them up by saying, no, there's not going to be any vote today, but he doesn't even explain to the counselors exactly what's going on. And what he introduces is something called a mayoral minute. And that's where he's allowed to kind of drop this and say, debates deferred, whatever particular motion it is, mayors can do this. Now, what we found out the other part of the story that ran on Sunday, uh, was that, that yes, he can do that. Um, and it doesn't have to be seconded. So he throws it out there. Nobody has to, they don't need anyone to second it. But they do apparently have to vote on it, according to their bylaws. Mm-hmm. And what we found out, we went to everybody. Well, Roxanne Fitzgerald, our reporter, who did an excellent job here, went to every single councillor and said, did you vote on the mayoral minute to suspend debate? And most of them wouldn't say. They wouldn't, mm-hmm. they wouldn't return calls. They wouldn't return emails. Um, I think it was Mick Palmer said, uh, I think everyone was in agreement. And there was another counselor who said, I think everyone was in agreement. We don't remember seeing a show of hands or anything or any formal vote on that. So council, meanwhile, though, right? It's a con, con stops answering questions, doesn't answer questions about all of the issues. And of course, it was Mick Palmer who flagged that too. And he said, look, that the issue of the sacred site up there on the Esplanade land that wasn't the only issue, but he said the other stuff's confidential. But he, he says that and he's the only one who comes out on the record and actually says that there was something else going on. Um, so you, you look at this vote, though, and they're saying, oh, well, um, well, council comes out. So Khan, meanwhile, he's hiding out, you know, he's hiding. He's in the coat check room or something. He's got the coats on top of him, um, hoping it all blows <laughs> over. He's got his media people telling telling. Well, I think we could say it. It's a lie. We, we've determined now it was an outright lie. They said a vote happened. They said it occurred. Um, Roxanne said to them, can you send me a record of this? Can you send me maybe the streaming video of when that happened? Mm. And they didn't get back to her and they wouldn't do it. And they wouldn't send any proof that this vote happened. Now, what happens in, in the meantime after that story is that this um, recording surfaces of of what happened that night there's a recording and on that recording you can you can you can clearly hear that there was no vote it was not put to a vote at all Mm -hmm. so the question is you know does that make it valid or invalid that the whole motion to even stop debate on it and does it have to come back and the other part of that too is that because they didn't put a date on when it would return when they deferred the debate of the motion um Apparently, convention dictates their bylaws that it, it comes back at the very next council meeting. So we could be looking at this all again. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so meanwhile, Roxanne uh, called up a respected uh, uh, fellow-in-law at CDU, John Garrick, um, to say, you know, what, what's your kind of take on this? I mean, this is all very confusing for everybody because it seems like something didn't happen here. Yeah. maybe properly. And he said, well, look, he's in, within his rights to do that. He can do it whether or not the vote happened. It's hard to say. And well, I mean, we know that the vote didn't happen, but whether or not it should have happened because, you know, you've got, you've got these issues that, that the counselors aren't aware of if they were going to vote on, like if they said no, and then they were going to vote on it, they wouldn't have the information that they had. So because Khan hadn't released anything. And even at this point, I'm not sure he's told the the entire story about it all. So, um, yeah, so he says uh, it does look like he's kind of, you know, walking a thin line of, of, uh, of breaking democratic principles here by, by not allowing the vote. But, um, you know, it was something that maybe needed to be done. But why hasn't he told the whole story? Why didn't he give people information that night about what it was? Why did it take overnight and into the next morning when he starts doing the media rounds and he's cooked up this story about the sacred site stuff? So. Mm. There's still, you know, and then and then he was on uh, the Mix 104 program with Katie Wolf, and Katie asked him about the the letter of illegal nature, and he starts doing his spin. Well, you know, if they have the the letter, they can put it in their newspaper. Well, I think he knows <laughs> the legal reasons for why we couldn't do that, but he's being sneaky, right? Because he knows that there's only so much that anybody can say about that letter. Mm. But I'm just saying that, and people can draw into whatever they want there. But he definitely received a letter of illegal nature and he's kind of playing games with it all right now. And I think that was, that was a pretty serious thing. And I don't know if he just got lucky with the timing of this. Billawaller Lee, Billawaller Lee had come to him and said that, you know, this is sacred site. And he jumped on that and he thought, great. Oh, my, my good fortune here. I've got a great story for everybody for the morning now. Um, instead of the speculation and stuff that's, but you know, and you know, uh, He's a he's a seasoned politician. He's uh, was a labor former labor minister. He knows how to um, to kind of spin things, and uh, and we will give him that. I mean, I think we're calling him. Everyone's calling him Diamond Con now, like Diamond <laughs> Joe Quimby, the mayor of Springfield, right? He loves a good show. He likes putting on. He likes the drama. He likes the theater of it all. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so uh, but there's still no answers there, and and. There's gonna, yeah, he can only run from this for so long before everything comes out. Let's say yeah. that. So we've heard of Kerr's Kerr. It's just Con's Con. Yeah, exactly what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I thought. I can see the headline now. Con's Con. <laughs> oh dear, you just uh, yeah, you just giving us a title for this podcast. I think. Okay, <laughs> let's uh, move on to uh, Robert Lamley and Territory Alliance. Well. I was expecting this to happen, but um, not as spectacularly as it seems to have unfolded. How, it sounded like uh, she quit the party before she was dumped, or what happened here? Yeah, well, so that's, yeah, um, I suppose technically that's correct, but the party did move to dump her. And so I was notified by this on, uh, just got to think what morning it was, yesterday, Wednesday morning. Uh, early that uh, that a letter had been sent by the management committee while of um, Territory Alliance to uh, to Robin Lamley, yeah, kind of like a show cause thing, getting her to explain herself on a meeting that they had arranged for this Sunday. And so, anyway, I'm, I'm trying to. It's just somebody who told me about that, so I'm trying to get the details of that. And I've I called the secretary there, Daniel Kelly, a former 
Katerina Canada for them and trying to figure out because I'd heard he was the one who wrote the letter. And I'm trying to get this letter. And meanwhile, I'm talking to other people and they're telling me what's going on. So I, I've got the story pretty much ready to go. Here's what we know. Um, I called Robin uh, to give her kind of right of reply here. And she was in Parliament. Uh, she called back and said, I wasn't even aware of this. She said, I did see that I got a letter from them this morning, but I didn't read it. And she said, I said, well, let me tell you what's in it. And I told her and she said, uh, oh, they must not have liked the colors of my press releases. She put out a press release this week where she didn't use Territory Alliance colors. It didn't actually mention Territory Alliance at all. And she kind of publicly started to, uh, to let her feelings known that she was seriously considering leaving the party. Um, and I think she'd been doing that for quite a while. I mean, even before the election, I think she was still kind of questioning everything. Um, yeah, so the party kind of made that decision up for her, really. And that's really how we would look at this, is that uh, she wasn't sure. Uh, they made her sure. And mm-hmm. so she did resign. She sent me a few lines that I put in the story. And that story was kind of written as it was happening. And... Um, uh, yeah, and so she's now said, yeah, screw you guys. I'm I'm resigning from this debacle. Yeah. It is territory lines. Uh, no one would argue with her about using that word to describe what yeah. happened here. And, yeah. you know, but one of the things, and I think it was James Outen, and he's a uh, ABC Journal. Uh, where is he now? I, think he, I thought he was over in the South Pacific for them. Um, Anyway, good guy, used to be a reporter here. Uh, he pointed out something on Twitter, I think, when we put the story up, and he said, so this is like NT politics at its finest. Like a, a party, a political party, actually doesn't want any representation in parliament. <laughs> yeah. They go out of their way to get rid of the one person <laughs> oh, that represented them. Like, the only member of parliament. Only yes. in the territory. Yeah, yeah the territory. it really is. I, and, I, and I'm not sure. Like I know that there was a lot of personal... Uh, issues there between Robin and, and some of those people in the party. And I'm not sure that anybody really thought about it for the good of the party in that sense. I know, like, look, look, Daniel Kelly and I had a chat later in the day yesterday and I updated his story with some lines there. And then he went on, I think it was on ABC and, uh, and Mix 104 uh, this morning, really letting loose on, on everything and, and saying that it was somewhat explosive to a degree that, I mean, this is all things that I knew because I've been covering this party for the whole election and we saw how things had happened. But for instance, that uh, the Terry Mills uh, didn't actually believe in the in the fracking ban policy. that, mm-hmm. And that's where it slipped out. Remember, Leon, we were talking about that and he had said, oh, I think it could happen safely, though. And it's like, well, you know, you just said that we need <laughs> to ban fracking because it's not safe. And now you're saying it could be safe. Mm-hmm. Um so he was saying that, and that's that's bad messaging, and that is, yeah, and I, I think Terry would probably have to take that along with Delia and, uh, and Lantry. And he really un- unleashed on uh, Delia Laurie and, and James Lantry, Daniel Kelly did, saying, and this is stuff that, you know, we've canvassed before and I've put in stories before that um, that, that that the party kind of, the, you know, that grassroots thing that Terry Mills envisioned as being the party didn't want... Uh, um, the political operatives or heavyweights, if you will, coming in and James Lantry and Daley Laurie who have this experience and who are political minded people, they wanted to still do this as a really, ah, uh, shucks, 
crest roots down on the farm mm. kind of uh, <laughs> uh, movement, which yeah. when you're in the rigor of a campaign, uh, you need somebody to actually make decisions and stuff. And, and, and to do it as a collective, that's not practical. And that's yeah. really political naivety on their part. And yeah. I don't know if I've said that before, but, and I'm, and I'm seeing this as a little political naivety too, to, to try and, and get rid of her and make a big public show about all of this too. I don't think that, that that's maybe in their best interest, but that being said, you know, they also blame, they hold Robin up to that too, saying that, look, yeah. you didn't contribute anything to the party. You did your own thing with Terry in terms of messaging and in terms of uh, trying to do what you can to, to win your seat. And she's a politician and she had to do what she had to do to win her seat. And where her interests with the party and the party says, no, they never were. Um, she just joined it because of Terry and, and Delia. And so, yeah, uh, look, they say they've actually got their, their numbers in order. And I know you guys were talking to Woody about that, their finances and stuff, which is um, impressive because I had heard that they were in some big trouble there. But because Terry Mills came through with his 200 grand yeah. donation there, they might be okay in terms of their debt. But <laughs> where it goes, where it goes right now, I I just don't know. I don't know what the really the philosophy is of, of doing it like this, but they say that they're going to keep going. They say they're going to continue mm. on and they just need new leadership. But <laughs> not, yeah, you got to start thinking that the brand might be damaged beyond repair here. It was damaged beyond repair the day Terry got up and was anti-fracking. When, when, you know. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people put it back on the day that Terry started it, right? Remember, we had uh, a woman from Alice Springs in our office uh, saying, look, we love that there's a third party here. We need that. We just don't like that Terry's the one leading it. <laughs> and um, I, like she summed that up, and I think a lot of Territorians thought mm -hmm. that exact same way. So, um, And he's no longer the leader of the party. I don't think he's a member anymore, I think Daniel Kelly said. Anyway, it hardly matters, but uh, and really it hardly matters anymore mm -hmm. because they're not really a, a political force at this time. They regroup, they get some new leadership, and uh, yeah, look, I don't know. I, I would suggest that the name's probably tarnished. So, yeah. You would think so. Uh, look, uh, turning to other political leaders now, uh, Chairman Gunner has copped some heat in Parliament this week for scrapping the integrity measures, uh, being told <laughs> that he's fogged up. Yeah. You fogged up, man. Yeah, fogged yeah, up. Yeah. Fogged up big time. <laughs> In fact, I think the NT News ran a line that uh, he doesn't give an FOI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Cunningham's story today was an excellent story about that and about scrutiny. Um, and, of course, we've been, we've been on, this, on this issue uh, for quite a while. Um, so yeah, so this week calling around, you know, everybody's coming back to parliament, so I started making some calls and talking to people. Um, somebody started mentioning that, oh, they're going to scrap the scrutiny committee. And I thought, okay, well, that's a story. I'm doing that story tonight here for tomorrow morning, <laughs> which will be their first day in parliament. And, uh, yeah, sure enough. So I said one of their first orders of business after being sworn in will be to, 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 to scrap this, um, oversight body that they brought in which I said was necessary for restoring integrity to government. And basically what this um, legislative uh, policy scrutiny committee did was uh, look at the bills. So when the government drafts its legislation, instead of just dropping it on parliament, they would go through this committee, which was kind of a bipartisan uh, committee, although it was still um, weighed with labor members. But 
still, you had uh, opposition members and independents on there too, who could look at the legislation, who could uh, get people in to talk about it um, before, you know, so they could come up with, with advice for the government if there had to be any amendments, any changes. Uh, it was something that Gunner really held on to early on, saying that, um, look, we're doing this to increase accountability to increase scrutiny. Um, and this is yeah, a smart thing to do and the right thing to do. And we're going to do this. And then we saw as, as that last term kind of started to wind down, uh, some of those pledges that they made, some of those, maybe they even truly believed in them at one, one point. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. but they didn't start to be as important. And, uh, what we see here now is is giving up on those commitments that they made to to territorians and to voters in 2016. That you know you you go back and we've we've run this before with that uh, restoring integrity to government manifesto that Gunner put out before the 2016 election. Uh, about three quarters of the things in there haven't been enacted and haven't even a lot of them haven't even been discussed. I mean mm-hmm. it's it's just become a joke that he even um, told people that, that he got elected on that, on a big part of that, and has not done that. I mean, one of the other things that he said, talking about FOIs there, Cunningham's story today, uh, he said he was going to get rid of fees. He's going to reduce the, 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 the top fee of $30 down to 20 when we first apply for an FOI. But that because that information is in the public interest, that there's not going to be any fees. Well, they tried to charge me $92,000 for an FOI <laughs> a couple months ago. Um, so this, this jerk yeah, has not yeah. done that. He is not. Uh, he, and in fact, like I've told you guys, like it's gotten so combative yeah. with people in DCM to get information that I've had to file formal complaints that we've, we've done everything we could. I mean, I was looking at getting lawyers involved at one point because, and this is just, this is like public information that people should have a right to that that guy got elected by saying that it is everybody's right to have that information. I'm going to make sure you get it. And what does he do when he gets in? And then to get rid of the scrutiny, the policy, the legislative scrutiny committee, that's just the next step into this complete assault on, on, on the integrity of the territory's institutions. And here we go again into that thing, but uh, I don't see any improvement anytime soon with that. And, And it's troubling for a lot of reasons. Well, Chris, is there any truth to their to, to their comment here that says that um, that now that the opposition is so large that you don't need a scrutiny committee because the opposition is supposed to be to provide the scrutiny? <laughs> what, <laughs> what's your view on that one? Well, look, this from this week in Parliament, from watching that, um, these guys aren't. Uh, are <laughs> Look, Leah is the only returning member who has experience. So she's got seven others with her who don't have any yeah. real political experience. Steve Edgington does from being on councils. but um, And there's some smart people in there, and I'm not trying to, to denigrate them. But no, they don't have the ability to do that. And even it's, it's you're looking at more of the staffers and stuff, and they've got a lot of young staffers there who don't mm. have experience. Um, to do that, it, it, it's to say that it, it's true in the sense that um, they have to be across everything. But this committee was set up with that sole purpose and to let the public come in on it too. Yeah. So public, they're no longer allowed in on. This is all about like under this banner too of uh, opening parliament to the people. Mm. And there were instances where 
legislation was being scrutinized and people from the public could come in and give comment on it. But that's gone completely now, too. And so, yeah, I mean, technically they have some time, unless the bill's put in on urgency, though, too. And, and labor has shown they're not afraid to do that. And this is before the pandemic. If they feel they need to get something through, they'll rush it through and there's nobody seen it then. It'll yeah. be done sight unseen like the CLP used to do. So, And they've yeah. got the votes anyway, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's just like, I get that, but that's just like the real basic level there is to yeah, say that, yeah. oh yeah, the opposition has to do it. But they had all of these other levels, layers yeah. of scrutiny that yeah. really people appreciated to some degree. I mean, look, at other times with the pet rental laws, the scrutiny committee said, bad idea really terrible idea yeah, don't yeah. do this and they did it anyway do it anyway hey. yeah. so yeah, yeah um yeah just it's just yeah that integrity i mean anytime that that man and i and he might as well never ever speak about integrity in government again yeah. because he's got no credibility anymore when it comes to those issues well chris i thought of you tonight because i went to the supermarket and i actually took a photo of the uh the front page of the uh the uh, NT government-sponsored NT News, and uh, <laughs> I, I had to laugh because, uh, you know, we talk about these FOIs all the time, but I just thought this summed it up. We received a 118-page report into the cost of renewable energy and the NT's freedom of information laws, but by the time the government had finished its reductions, 116 of them looked black. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Uh, I, I, I texted Cunningham this morning, because um, it was Cunningham, who's Sky News, right? He's a Sky News correspondent here, but he does some stuff for the NT News from time to time. So he shared that story with them. But yeah, because we were wondering, wait a second, who's in there doing this? Oh, wait, it's Cunningham. <laughs> okay, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So anyway, I texted Matt and I said, hey, man, great story. I said, please don't tell me that they charged you like about $4,000 <laughs> to have some jerk in the department go with a black yeah. marker through it. And he said, no, thankfully, that, last little bit of the insult they didn't do they didn't charge them any more than the 30 up front but you know and this is into what the government should be proud of this is like one of their policies on renewable energy exactly um how are we going to get there how are we going to do this and they redacted so that the public doesn't know this guy's getting a bad reputation gunner like internationally as we talked about before when we have you know journalistic um committees coming out and saying he's got to he's got to reverse this ban on the free press and then you've got instances of this going on where um, they're just suppressing information and, and without reason. I mean, to say that, oh, no, well, this is, you know, this is for cabinet only on this. Well, taxpayers paid for it. I, you could redact some things that were maybe commercial and confidence in there. But overall, if that's your strategy or that's a plan that's going to inform the strategy, release your strategy and your plan and let people see yeah, that. Yeah. But this government doesn't believe in that. Clearly, and it, yeah, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. Well, mate, yeah, you keep doing what you're doing. Uh, we, we'll close it out for this week, Chris. But uh, thanks very much for coming, and uh, apologies for the baptism of fire, mate. After a week off, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I knew what to expect coming into Parliament, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, this one, this one's been crazy, but it's been good and good to be back. Thanks, guys. Welcome back, Chris. That was Chris Walsh from the NT Independent Online newspaper. Weekends with Bolshe back again next week on the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, the Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.